You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. Second City is excited to work with Amazon as part of their new and exciting app called AMP. AMP is a home where anyone can create live radio-style shows alongside some of the biggest names in the entertainment industry, including ours. Join the Second City live every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central Time for our show, Second City Public Radio. SCPR is an interactive weekly lampoon of all things public radio. Each week, our host and an ever-expanding panel of Second City characters open up the lines to listeners from around the U.S. to ask questions and offer us opinions on a slew of wide-reaching subjects. Download the app, and don't forget to tune in. AMP. Thursdays at 5 p.m. Central Time. I really enjoyed this conversation uh, with Gabriella Rosen-Kellerman. She served as Chief Product Officer and Chief Innovation Officer at BetterUp, founding CEO of LifeLink, and an advisor to healthcare, coaching, and behavior change technology companies. She's got a new book that she has co-authored with the legendary social psychologist Martin Seligman. It's called Tomorrow Mind, Thriving at Work, Now and in an Uncertain Future. Enjoy the pod. The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is getting the yes and. Days can be counted by the money spent. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow is just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. Gabriella Rosen Kellerman, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So wonderful to be here. I'm happy to have you. So the first chapter of your book uh, is titled Our Brains at Work. And the first lines of that chapter are, quote, in the beginning, change came slowly and it came primarily from the weather, end quote. So I want to ask, why do you start the book at the dawn of humanity? (laughs) I mean, that is a big opening. Um, well, I mean, we could have started, we started it maybe 70,000 years ago. We could have started it a million years ago. So I guess there was an even oh. more ambitious version. Yeah. Let's, we decided let's go not, that. not to write. All right. But if you were um, starting it a million years ago, what, what would that have been like? And then so, you can leap to the other one. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that, that, uh, whether it's a million or 70,000, we want to really get the point across that the work that we are quote unquote designed for, which is obviously not really how evolution works, but uh, go with it for a moment. The work mm-hmm. we're designed to do, the work our brains evolved in relationship to is foraging and hunting and gathering. And just to really take that in, really think about what does that mean we're naturally good at? What does that mean we're going to naturally struggle with? 
and gain a little perspective from what it was like to originally shift from that world of work first to farming and then to factory life. It helps really give us a sense of compassion for what we're going through today, which is really important. There's an opportunity to draw all of these important learnings about how not to fall into a state of low well-being through these transitions. And then above all, we want to be able to look at this as an opportunity to get back to some of those beautiful native abilities around creativity, cognitive agility, exploring opportunities, that's really what our brains love to do when they're and you know really really good at in so many ways but the last couple of thousand years of work haven't really encouraged that and today once again we have an opportunity to lean into that and and thrive and we shouldn't be scared of it because we we actually developed in relationship to that exact kind of work so this includes caregiving right and in, in, in the sense that villages helped raise children and this idea that keeps getting shoved into the culture of uh well, I don't know if you're being responsible if you're a woman at work you know it mm. come it, it seems to come back to the extent of I mean like one of those uh, stories I heard once was remember the milk cartons with all the kids were being abducted yeah uh, yeah that was timed quite well with films like Working Girl and and people women coming back in the workplace mm. and I, I think this just happens over and over again and and what you do in terms of setting up uh, the, this initial chapter is to talk about like, n- no, we didn't work insane hours. And no, it wasn't just the men who did important work. It was much more evenly distributed. It was much more focused on on, on meaning and purpose and also the land and yep. nature, nature and those sort of things. And we've gotten yep. so far away from that, right? Totally. Um and uh, and by the way, kids were part of all of that, right? So mm. picking berries is a really fun thing we take our kids to do on the weekends now as recreation. Yeah, that was right. once the quote unquote work to be done. So yeah. how fun to be able to do that all together and really enjoy that. It's part of, I think, why we naturally enjoy the experience so much is that's actually what life used to be about is that sort of leisurely gathering of the resources that were available. One of the things I love about doing this podcast is I interview so many people across disciplines and words come out, right? So, mm. so identity threat is something that, uh, has come up a bit. Uh, intention has, has come up a bit. Uh, prospection is a thing that you talk about and that has come up across, across mediums. So can mm. you talk a bit about what prospection is? And, and then I want to sort of move that into what happened with the industrial revolution. Yeah, absolutely. So prospection is, uh, one of our uniquely, human capabilities to imagine and plan for the future. Um, it happens in two phases, which we could talk about. The first is really fast and optimistic and divergent, lasts a few seconds. And then quickly thereafter, we shift into a more evaluative, deliberative, slower, real, more realistic, sometimes more pessimistic way of now saying, okay, of all of those possibilities that just came up for me, which am I going to go after? So that, that seems like a, just the, it's, it's system one, system two, but a little bit more in terms of that. Uh, it, it's, it's a great question. And we discuss in the book, there's, there's system one, system two, there's phase one, phase two of prospection. There's a number of sort of two phase models that all overlay in really interesting ways. And to me, that just means we're, it's close to the truth. Like it's all somehow getting to the core of there's sort of two ways of, of thinking about this and they complement each other. And, the truth is somewhere in between. 
uh, so much to the chagrin of some of my coworkers and, and to the delight of others. And this will be a delight point. My office is just sort of like there's a hallway, a small hallway, and then uh, the head of HR. Uh, and I went into Laurel, <laughs> Laurel Legler's office, head of people in Second City. I was like, hey, did you know that HR started when a guy wanted to help a drunk guy so he would work better? And she goes, that checks out. Now I'm <laughs> jokingly simplifying it. But tell the story because this has happened in Chicago, too. It's amazing. Yeah. So, um, so there was a, an employer, um, a Chicago business person who was aware that drunkenness was increasingly a problem for his workforce and had one employee in particular who was really struggling, um, with alcoholism. And he decided to just take him in, give him a place to crash. Um, and, uh, he ended up crashing in this businessman, Robert Law's home for a while. Um, eventually this person got back to work and successfully so. And this business person took on the task of creating really the first, one of the first sober living facilities in, in history. And that is actually this, the seed from which, um, the entire industry of what's called employee assistance programs, uh, grew. So today, Every large employer has an employee assistance program. If you work for a large company, most medium size and even small too, um, you have access to something called employee assistance program. It once was all about alcoholism and helping people get sober. And um, today it spans uh, all kinds of different services, including counseling, referrals, referrals for therapy, different types of wellness benefits. So it's become much more of a, an umbrella for employee well-being. Yeah, I I get hired to do a lot of keynotes and a lot of them are HR. Uh, and so one of the things I say early on when I'm talking to them is that I believe that the most powerful division in corporate America is going to be HR. I do this to pander and because I believe it. So uh-huh. then let's let's, let's Good. say both. Good uh, pairing. But, uh, yeah, because it, but the the reality is, and you talk about this, and I cite these uh, statistics all the time at the World Economic Forum. They estimate that by 2025, we'll have 50 percent labor performed by humans and 50 percent by machines. That is provocative and important to know. Um, t- tell us why in your mind. Yeah. So it's both the fact that more and more of the work is happening uh, by being done by machines and the fact that it's happening really quickly. So we are going to need to adjust our careers, our forms of work, not just once, but possibly several times over, over the course of, of our careers as adults. This contrasts greatly with you know, our, our parents or grandparents' generation where they might be in the same role for their entire career. In fact, my father's been with the same employer for 50 years of wow. his career. Mm-hmm. Shifted roles a little bit, but basically the, the same work. And um, and that is now, you know, a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, more and more of our work is being automated, which means we need to reinvent ourselves. This is obviously compounded by the overall fast pace of change, which is also being driven by technology and automation, but that accelerates market disruption. It accelerates the pace at which we need to go from one industry to another where we wouldn't have ever had to do that before. Yeah. So this is why people hire Second City, right? Because if you think, well, why would they want to hire people who are funny, but but we do that because we know how to improvise, mm-hmm. which means we know how to tell stories. We know how to be agile, resilient. Uh, we listen well. We collaborate well. And and increasingly, too, in the workplace, because you have all these generations, it's not just that the generation coming in doesn't know how to 
talk to us, uh, though that might be true in some ways, but also the older generations don't always know how to listen to mm. them and listen to understand. Mm. And that requires the building of those muscles. And unfortunately, and I think you're probably going to agree with this, which is it's not like they teach us that in school. Yeah. Um, I was listening to a podcast the other day. It goes, why don't we learn decision-making? I'm like, oh, oh my God, you're completely right. If, if that was something that was sort of drilled in, what, what are the skills you need to make a good decision? And I can't recall any class I had undergrad, no. grad. What, yeah, no, right? No, I mean, I mean, in general, uh, all of the behavioral sciences, psychology, um, neuroscience, you know, you might get a passing glance at it in high school in biology. Um, a lot of the standard curriculums bucket it with things like political science or sociology, things where you sort of the, the the school can mix and match in order to fill fulfill a requirement. To me, this is the absolute core of what we all need to understand. We need to understand our own operating systems, right? Like what what's more important than that? Um, once upon a time, there was the introduction of physical health education, right? Why do we not have the same for our emotional well-being, our mental health? Even just for these higher order cognitive functions like decision making, of course, we should be trained in that. What's more important? And, and I'll take it one step further and just say that the science is growing at a rapid enough pace in this space that I think we also need to be instilling a fluency in understanding the literature itself so that mm-hmm. we can keep pace with it as it grows and changes. And that, you know, let's say, I, you know, I was in high school in the nineties. If I was trained in decision-making science in the nineties, it's a lot different now. I would need the skills to be able to keep pace with that literature rather than sort of be stuck in a moment of time. No, we should acknowledge too that, that contemporary business schools, the the Stanford's and the Booth schools and and the Harvard, uh, cause we're working with many of those folks. They are talking about this stuff. And I had, we had Max Baserman on the pod recently and, and also I asked him, I'm like, since when did ethics suddenly get taught in business school? And he's like, after Enron and, and, and sort of everyone started waking up at a certain point. And I'm like, I never put that together because I mean, you would think purely yeah. the, the domain of philosophy, but, but I think it's much more useful, uh, in, in the hands of people who are going to be future leaders. It's a great point. And to, to the credit of the business schools in particular, I think many of them are leading the way in what this should look like. And I would just love to see us do it much sooner and earlier in, in education, education that everyone gets. Um, I know a little about post-traumatic go- growth, which is introduced to me by S- Scott Barry Kaufman. Mm-hmm. I did not know, uh, that the way that developed was the Department of Defense dealing with PTSD. That was interesting. Yeah, so a lot of the foundational work on thinking about resilience as this population level curve and the far end of dysfunction is PTSD and the far end of sort of superpower hyperfunction is is post-traumatic growth. That came out of Marty's collaboration with DOD that started with the question of how do we treat PTSD? And Marty's point was, well, the reality is we don't, unfortunately, we can do symptomatic treatment. We don't have a cure for PTSD. So we need to think about how we prevent it before it starts. And the way to do that is to understand why some people develop it and some people don't. And that's where you start to look at this population bell curve of responses to extremely challenging or even traumatic events. And you see that not only do most people bounce back without too much trouble, there's even some people who grow stronger through that challenge. And that is a phenomenal promise that we can develop skills to build toward. 
So I'm on a, ne- a never-ending quest to find a better term than soft skills. Um, but uh, uh, that might thank that you, might be- thank you for your work. Please <laughs> I, continue. Well, I haven't found it. I'm, I'm trying. Uh, but you have a lovely um, uh, uh, couple sentences here in the book that I think also some of these words are more muscular than people maybe think. You, you write in the book, "quote The practice of better appreciating our lot uh, is today called savoring and is connected to gratitude." both of which have been shown in hundreds of scientific studies to improve well-being. So let's talk about savoring and let's talk about gratitude. Two different things, but but connected. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So um, think about savoring as a way to steep your brain in the positive vibes of a, of a good experience rather than let your brain sort of run off to the next thing. And we're steeping in this, in this optimism, this happiness, this place of gratitude. We have instincts to move on to the next urgent thing, but in, in the midst of moving on, we, we lose a lot of the benefits that come from those positive feelings. So savoring keeps us in a moment of something positive. If you've hit an achievement at work, even if you just had a, a wonderful, um, interpersonal experience with a friend that felt warm and connected, stay with that feeling. Uh, think about the different sensations it's bringing up in you. Let yourself name the emotions. Is it, is it love? Is it uh, appreciation? Um, is it awe? Name it, understand it, sit with it, extend the time that your brain is exposed to it, and you will extend the amount of, uh, of benefits you reap. Think of it like a tanning bed for your brain. You're nice. really, you just need, you need more time in that tanning bed to see the effects. And, and then gratitude is, is, uh, you know, um, it's, it's connected because we're trying to be much more intentional about an act uh, of positive emotions that's going to reap benefits for us in lots of different ways. Gratitude is a specifically oriented, often oriented toward another person, whereby we're able to experience gratitude for something someone has done for us, express it to them. And so we're not only having this internal experience of the positive feelings that we get with savoring, but now we're having a feeling of interpersonal connectedness that comes from the expression of that gratitude. So I had a little bit of an aha while you were talking. And one is that, could it be that the opposite of savoring is rumination? I think that's, I think it's, um, it's absolutely true. Um, and it's, it's, I don't know if it's quite the opposite, but it's, Savoring is what we're trying to counter rumination with. Yeah, yeah We yeah. are naturally drawn to stay in the negative right. because we're trying to work out a problem, right? And we're trying to prepare to not have that happen again. Whereas it's not as evolutionary, immediately evolutionary adaptive to stay with the positive because it was great. So let's, you know, let's move on. Um, but at the, the level, the neural level, the uh, benefits of staying in that kind of parasympathetic rest and recharge space and, and training ourselves to have more of a positive experience is, um, is, you know, is so, is so important. Okay. And the other thing that I, and I've talked about this exercise a bunch, but I don't care because it's really important. It makes sense in the world we live in right now. Um, uh, the idea of gratitude. So when we first started working with the university of Chicago professors, we, we led them through the yes and exercise, which is really about 
allowing for an abundant amount of ideas, being playful, mm-hmm. and really, in, in, in this, it, it's not forever. It's five minutes at the beginning of a brainstorm or whatever. Uh, and then they posed us the question, well, how do you stay inside a conversation when you can't yes and or don't want to yes and? And we sort of went away to our prospective uh, villages. Uh, and over the course of a month, we kind of came up with this idea. This, this paper gets published next year, and it's called Thank You Because. And the idea is, if we fundamentally disagree with the person, who's across from us, but we want to stay inside the conversation. We thank them for what they just offered us, setting off the gratitude part of the brain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we find something, anything, no matter how small and what they said, um, that we can uh, agree with. So so thank you, because what you just said, said has incredible meaning. You're passionate about it. And, and when we've run this, and we've done it with tens of thousands of people, people stay in conversations longer. They They kind of maybe see a point they are willing to stick it out uh and that is the antithesis of what we read in the paper and hear in our podcast oh, right now yes. right i and love that yeah gra- i gratitude love that is so grace. much gratitude oh i love that that's beautiful gratitude is grace um i i think the ability to engage in a um lengthy a productive back and forth where we have differences of ideas. It hinges on mutual respect. Um, it hinges on our ability to look at one another and see a fellow human being who's doing their best. And when we have that broader context of connectedness in place, uh, the, these differences don't feel sharp. They feel interesting. They feel helpful. You know, we, we can accept them and allow them and, sit in the ambiguity and, you know, maybe even the cognitive dissonance and know that there's a common shared experience there. And we're both doing our best to achieve often to achieve common goals, right? Often we enter those conversations with the same goal. We just have very different ideas about how to get there. But even the fact that we have the same goal is a source of connectedness and and a piece of fabric that kind of binds us together in this moment in a really comforting way, even if we're going to be disagreeing and, and hammering out these different viewpoints. And, and I think often an uncomfortable way. And and that that uh, that leads me to another uh, uh, study we did with Eilat Fishbach at, at UFC. And we it was part of a larger study, uh, but they came into beginning classes and they ran hundreds of Second City beginning students through the same exercise. Half of the group was just told to do the exercise, but the other half was told, Hey, this is going to be a little bit uncomfortable and that's okay. That group performs substantially better and mm. people, people felt more emboldened by that. And that mm. is just like you gave them a frame. You gave them a verbal frame, a tiny mm-hmm. verbal frame. And it had that much of a powerful, um, uh, oh. you know, uh, push. I love that. I love that. Um, I, I think also in these moments, so, so if we can prime people to say it's going to be uncomfortable, it's going to be okay. I think if we can also prime people to not expect you're going to get to some resolution quickly. Right. Uh, you know, we, we talk in the book about the pressure of time and how antisocial it makes us when we feel like we're in a hurry or we have to get through something really quickly. These difficult things don't just work themselves out, but if we know that we have time to get there, then you know it's a lot easier. And often, it's not actually that much more time that we need. What we need most is to relieve ourselves from the psychological pressure of this must be done right now. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about 
so my audience has heard the the Princeton seminary students study it uh-huh. a couple times. The University of Virginia 2008 study. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, t- talk. I love this one. So talk talk us through it. Great. So um, researchers took a, advantage of uh, the fact that when students cross campus, um, uh, you know, are, are walking anywhere, sometimes they're alone and sometimes they're with a friend. And so as students at the University of Virginia were crossing campus, there's a particular point where the campus sloped up into a hill. And they stopped people, sometimes individuals and sometimes those walking with a friend, and asked them to estimate how steep that hill was in front of them. And what they found was if you were walking alone, you estimated that hill as being steeper than if you were walking with a friend. So just the presence of another human being with you um, created a greater sense of I can do this and this is uh, this is a little bit easier of a task ahead of me. That's wild uh and i think the re- the reason i sort of like don't doubt it and i know you know one looks for replication in a variety, variety of ways uh but i i just know based on on the work we do the power that humans together in a room have and i recognize what happens when you're say not in a room together for a year a year and a half especially when you are fueled and i'm not just talking about like six people performing together. I'm talking about six people performing together with 300 people in front of them all laughing at the same time. You cannot underestimate the power of that sort of communal experience and what's happening between everyone who's involved in that. It's it's, it's why we've been gathering in these spaces, mm-hmm. looking for reflections of humanity since the going back to the dawn of man. This is, I didn't expect it to be like, you know, 2001 Space Odyssey music, but maybe we'll overlay that. <laughs> See, that's where you took it to start the story too. It's yeah, just natural. That's where it starts. Well, this is this is the big stuff. It's just like, and, and we don't do it alone. If I have one mantra I've been talking about on and on again, I get the fight against systemic racism and misogyny. I am here for it. I am here for people respecting individuals uh, who are different and all of that. Um, but that doesn't have to cancel out the idea that we can't move the human endeavor forward if we're going to be killing each other or blocking each other or all that. So it's like, it, it's the difficulty of living with a duality, which is, I think, the reality that that generations of spiritual teaching have been telling us, whether whether we like the churches that have formed out of that spiritual teaching, the source have been saying light and dark, um, uh, good good and bad, suffering and happiness. That that's and, and I think our what your book is pointing out is, Yes, we're so technically advanced, uh, but we're still just human beings. We're going to have to work with these machines. We, yeah, and, and we and we desperately need each other. We need each other as much as we ever have, and it's harder than it, it ever has been to connect. Um, part of the challenge is the technology that we think is drawing us closer is not doing that. It's it's getting in our ways and in ways that we don't fundamentally understand. Um, but being on a you know, I'd hypothesize that being on social media with somebody isn't going to make that hill look less steep um, versus having an actual felt experience connection with them. And to your point about difference, by the way, like we we know that at the neuroscientific level, we can process someone either as an us or a them. And when we process them as an us, we get all these benefits, right? We see the hill is is less steep. 
where we get into the parasympathetic system where our body is restoring and comforted and we feel a greater sense of time abundance and less time pressure and all of these benefits. Um, and when someone's a sense of them, there's more of a threat that comes. And part of the work of developing close relationships, especially across fundamental difference, is teaching our brain to reprocess someone from an us to a them. And I would actually hypothesize in that gratitude exercise that you mentioned, mm-hmm. where we were talking about gratitude as grace and the idea of uh, figuring out how you're aligned toward the same goals. All of what we're doing in that moment is just reprocessing from them to us. So we stay connected and we get all of those physiological benefits of the connection, even when we don't have the same opinion about something. Yeah. Cause you're seeing someone else. I mean, you're, it's individuation, right? You're seeing someone else as having mm-hmm. a mind and a soul or a spirit. And when you do that, it becomes very hard to dehumanize them. Um, yeah. And, and re and recategorization, which is another mm-hmm. type of, of technique here. So instead of seeing you as my adversary, seeing you as someone who's fighting against what I want to do, I recategorize you as an ally working toward the same overall goal. And maybe we're going to go about it differently. You know, we're going to have different tactics and we have to figure out how not to get in each other's way. But there's a broader umbrella here under which we're in the same tribe. Um, uh, UFC at the time asked us to turn this stuff into an orientation program for undergrad, grad, and now the law school does it. And before we do any, like the, uh, thank you because or any of that, the, one of the very first, the, I don't know, it's the first, uh, uh, exercise is a thing that we created called I am somebody who. So we gather all the students in a circle and we say, all right, the, lead facilitator is going to say, I am somebody who, and they're going to say something. And if anyone else identifies with that, change places in the circle. And so Mm. it starts out very simple. Like I'm somebody who's wearing jeans. I'm somebody who identifies as Catholic. And it goes, I am somebody who owns a gun. I am someone who is a vegan. I am somebody who has never voted. And suddenly you are looking at like the vegans got a gun. (laughs) It's never voted. And, and you realize that it's, it's almost Whitman esque in what is going on Mm. and all the individuals mind. You combine that with the movement, which is some interesting research with that, uh, with, with the learning and the impression. It becomes a really powerful way to start this journey of getting people to place of like, just take a beat try to look at, at something they and the things they might be saying are things they even mean just like it's beautiful get, yeah so i love I, that i love mm-hmm. the, the self-disclosure element to mm-hmm. sort of open up vulnerability beautiful so if i'm trampling on your yes and story we can make this your yes and story um all right when you want when you chose to get a medical degree what were you going towards <laughs> Ah, okay. So I knew at a pretty young age in adolescence, I wanted to study the brain because I think it's so fascinating. As I said, our operating system, knowledge of knowledge itself, like what matters more than that? And also because I felt an emotional pull to alleviate suffering. Uh, I can tell more about that, but the combination of that sort of emotional draw it to help individuals who are suffering and then the intellectual draw to the brain. It was like, this is, this is where I'm going. Um, figuring out how to do that professionally is really the journey of my career and, and the journey I'm still on in many ways. And the original guidance I got was if you want to do research and also help people, um, with emotional support, do something clinical and, uh, and probably getting an MD is going to 
be an empowered place to get funding. And it seems silly now in retrospect, but this was what I had access to. And and that was the path I chose was go to medical school, be a psychiatrist, do the research, treat patients. Mm -hmm. Um, I got tremendous education and uh, learned a a lot about the brain and how to do neuroscience research. And I'm extremely grateful for it. Uh, I, I did end up choosing another route, but that was where I started. All right, talk about changing the other route. What, what, what was the what was the zag? What was the zig on that? Yeah, so so because my pull was always toward um, how do we help people live better and how do we use science to innovate in ways that will alleviate suffering at a population level and promote well being at a population level. Uh, I found that really hard to do within the world I suddenly found myself. So at the end of all of my training, you know, I was in a, a research program with a very specific focus because you need to be very, very uh, specific to get funding to do the research. And um, and then on the clinical side, I was working with really psychologically unwell people um, and helping them with drugs that had been around for a while that were doing an okay job. And that was what I was going to be doing for the next 40 years of my career. And I, I didn't see that I was going to feel satisfied. It was going to be a good fit for my push to want to innovate more rapidly A at a population level B and also with a focus on well-being rather than just, you know, kind of treating symptoms of, of severe illness. So it was just suddenly, you know, it'd been going along in the journey. Yes, we're on the right path. We're on the right path. And then suddenly it was like, I'm just suddenly in the wrong forest now. So mm. I got to get back on that path and find the space where I'm going to be able to do more um, by way of innovation and more for the general population. Yeah. It's interesting for me because uh, like at least my perception of, of my career, I want to be a playwright coming out of college. And then the advice I got is if you want to be in theater, work in a theater, no matter what, uh-huh. what. And so uh, I ended up getting a job as a dishwasher at second city. Um, <laughs> and That's amazing. That's brilliant. Uh, it was the worst. Uh <laughs> I always tell this, the other guy who got hired that week uh, as a dishwasher was John Favreau, the film director. Oh um, my gosh. So, so so cool in the sense that we were dropped into this, but you could smoke in the theater in those days. I mean, it's just not, you know. Different world. Uh, yeah. Uh, and then stuff kept happening. This is how I perceive it to me. So it was sort of like, oh, you know, why don't you work in the box office? And then you're, you're closer mm-hmm. to the producers mm-hmm. and like, oh, you know, I've got these ideas for marketing. Great. We're going to make you director of marketing, right? Like things. And so I became a producer. I wanted to be a playwright. Uh, uh, but I, uh, and I was writing plays during the day, but I got offered this, the big job in 1992 and I took it. And then I, my boss, every time I have success with something, he'd be like, all right, great. Why don't you do this other thing? And I'm like, okay. okay. And I would do it. And it pushed me to the point where, as I'm sitting here today, I love what I do, which is this intersection of mm-hmm. experience around comedy and improvisation. Um, uh, the, the knowledge that I get out of working in academia and with academia and combining those things to create bespoke programs and, and, and everything from, productions to you know um uh, courses and collaborations and and I, I i feel like i didn't have a lot of say in that maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong um but it sounds like you kind of knew what you were doing and you were good at doing a check going ah this ain't it but i can pivot to that and so it's like I you think... don't lose what's behind you but you 
Yeah, I think we, I think there's probably some fundamental similarities in our journeys. And I love your story, by the way. It's so emblematic of what it takes to thrive in our world of work, which is a general idea, figure out a way to start, keep your mind, your ears, your heart open to opportunity, right? Mm, as, yeah. as things come your way, the box office, I'm sure it took a minute and there are plenty of people who would never have done that, let alone be a dishwasher to begin with. But you're sort of finding your way in what we call these whitewater rapids. You're saying yes, you're trying things, you're figuring out what's right about this thing that I want to keep leaning into. And then what are some new opportunities that maybe I want to start exploring as well? So when I left medicine, I didn't know what I was going to do, but the way I went about it was I just tried a lot of different things. So Mm. I found a a clinic where I could keep doing psychiatry, but for a very different audience in a different setting. It was also a place where they were experimenting with telemedicine. And so I got to sort of help with that and learn about telemedicine, which I'd never heard of before. I also found... uh, my way into a role as an associate producer on a documentary about citizen science. I I like to write. I like to tell stories. I like to think about how people use data. That was something I'd never done before, but I I found it, decided let's let's give it a whirl. Um, It was really fun. I learned a lot about the tech sector through that, right? Mm -hmm. That was one of these pieces along with the telemedicine that started pointing me toward the area that I am now. Um, I also have a skill as a writer. So I did some freelance journalism. I focused on stories within that opportunity of where is innovation happening and in, in well-being. And a lot of that was pointing me toward tech as well. So it, you know, you you take these opportunities, you have to go after them to a certain extent, but you also have to try things that don't seem like a perfect fit, but you're just going to try it and see what happens and what you can learn. And each is kind of this not at all linear stepping stone that then in retrospect, you know, I, I think you and I would count myself in the group as well, feel very fortunate to have landed where I did. And I don't think it was an accident, but it also was very far from linear. Uh, do you have a different yes and story? I do. Oh, I'd love to hear it. So my yes and story, and I'm very passionate about it. It's, it's actually four to five different stories, um, because they align to my choice to have kids and to have each subsequent kid. So I have five kids today. The last two are twins. So that's why I said four to five, because <laughs> that was a surprise. It wasn't five decisions. It was, you know, four decisions, but. Um, I think going back to where we actually started the conversation, one of the choice points where people get stuck um, is people who do want to have kids, but also want to have a career. It's hard to think your way ahead to that one. And uh, at a younger age, I didn't see how that was going to be possible. And it created a lot of sense of crisis. And ultimately, what it came down to was just in the moment, if both of those things feel really important, then you just have to do both and you have to trust it's going to be really uncomfortable. And there are going to be moments where it doesn't feel like in that, in that exact moment, like you know how you're going to find your way forward, but you can take one step and then another step and then another. And eventually you're, you're doing it. Um, and, uh, I wish when I was younger, I could have had someone talk to me about it that way. Um, mm. and, and help me see that. There is a way it's possible. It's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to have to make a lot of trade-offs and decisions, but you can absolutely do it and you will not regret it for a second. 
that you did both of those things, assuming again, you're, you're someone who wants to have kids, which I always did. Your timing is amazing because my next podcast uh, next week is with Yael Schonbrunn, who's got a book called Work, Parent, Thrive, and she's a scientist and a therapist. And it's the most refreshing thing because it's sort of like, no, it's going to suck and you're going to love it. And I like in my, you know, I've had tragedy as being a parent and it is I wouldn't trade a minute Mm -hmm. for having my children. Uh, I would not trade a minute. And and I think it's brought my my life meaning, especially as I age and purpose and all those those sort of good things. But you have to have the power to frame it uh, as such. And and also she points out in the book, as you do here, which is like wasn't built like this, you know, and by the way, the idea that uh, an at-home parent is better, there is very little data to suggest that, like, if not no data to suggest that that is, is, is true because your kids also have to, I mean, this is the thing that when you improvise, which is like, you got to let them like fail a lot and, and then, and then they get up and I, I was, you know, I, I, I'm 56. So I was born at an age where it's like, go out and there's no cell phone and I'm just mm-hmm. out and about and I'm making mistakes and whatever, and I'm coming home. And it's, 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 that's, yeah. that, that's what happens. But I, I felt so much more. And I think that's for my kids too, able to navigate an uncertain world. You talk about VUCA in in the book and it, it's, it's, yeah, it, it it's kind of always been like that, but it's especially like that now and with, with technology and, and other things. Uh, but it's also, I also believe Raising your kids like that um, is a antidote to later loneliness. Yeah, right? I think. I mean, I think John Height's research on this mm-hmm. uh, is is the most compelling and um, instructive, and I recommend that book, "The Coddling in the American Mind," uh, very highly to parents who are struggling with what level of oversight and, and supervision to give. And you know, ultimately, it's personal; it's decisions you're you're going to make about. For those of us who are parents, what one of the most important, not the most important parts of your life. Um, but for sure, the data shows that uh, we are, as children, anti-fragile in the sense that challenges help us grow stronger. And if we're not exposed to challenges, we will not grow stronger in that way. And so if we're too coddled, um, we, we don't, we miss the opportunities to strengthen those capabilities and ultimately become, uh, higher functioning with higher well-being and higher ability to get through the harder stuff as it will inevitably come our way, whether we're coddled or not. The book is called Tomorrow Mind, Thriving at Work Now and in an Uncertain Future. Gabriella Rosen-Kellerman, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Kelly. Getting the Yes And podcast is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. We are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. Our show is produced by Andrew Harris at WGN. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more about The Second City, you can log on to secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.